Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. As we begin the last chapters of Revelation, we will be encountering many things we don't understand. And though we won't have all our questions answered until we stand before God face to face, there are some things we do know with great assurance. God is trustworthy, and we know that those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life need not fear any part of the future as God works out his plan for the restoration of all things. As we begin our text in Revelation 19 verse 11, we see Jesus as we've never seen him before. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God. Heaven opens and John sees before him a magnificent white horse with a victorious figure riding astride him, a figure who is very plainly Christ because we're told in the last part of John's description that his name is the Word of God. He's also called Faithful and True, a name for Christ we saw in Revelation 3 verse 14. What a stark contrast this is to the lies and deceit of the Antichrist. The fact that Jesus arrives on a horse, though, is significant. At his first coming, Christ entered Jerusalem on a donkey, which in the custom of the day symbolized a king coming in peace. However, at his second coming, Christ will arrive seated on a majestic white horse, symbolizing the return of a victorious conquering king. Notice that Christ is proclaiming victory here even before the final battle has been waged. There is no question about his purpose. He has come to make war with justice and righteousness against all that is evil. His eyes are like blazing fire. Nothing escapes the piercing gaze of his judgment. And on his head are many crowns, diadema in Greek. These are not like the crowns we've seen mentioned before in Revelation, for these, the diadema, are the royal crowns. He is coming as ruler of all, as king of kings and lord of lords. John notices the blood on Christ's robe, and though we normally associate Jesus with the blood of his own sacrifice, this time the blood on his garments is not just his own. At this advent, it is the blood of his enemies as well. The robe dipped in blood is a picture from Isaiah's prophecy about the day of God's vengeance. In Isaiah 63 verses 1 through 4, the prophet actually has a a discussion with the magnificent victor. Isaiah says to him, Who is this robed in splendor, riding forward in the greatness of his strength? And the victor replies, It is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. 
Isaiah then asks, Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? And the victor answers, I have trodden the winepress alone from the nations. No one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. John also notes that the rider has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. For as much as any of us think we know about Christ, he is so much more. We know Jesus as our Savior, our Redeemer, our Shepherd, our Brother and our Friend, our Lord and our God. But how can we possibly grasp all that he really is? Note that Jesus does not come alone here. John sees a great host with him in verse 14. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The armies of heaven who follow him are made up not only of his angels, but of all who trusted in him. They also ride white horses, the same symbol of victory as their leader, and they're said to be clothed in fine linen, white and clean. In other words, they are not dressed for battle. They do not wear armor. They are dressed as victorious conquerors because the battle belongs to the Lord. He is the one who will strike down the nations with his powerful word and rule them with a rod of iron, or in other words, with a firm hand, allowing no more rebellion. He is the one who will tread the winepress of God's wrath. He is the one who is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. This is a reference to the coming battle of Armageddon that ends badly for all those who are opposed to the Lord Jesus. All those who reject God and their opportunity to be at the glorious wedding supper of the Lamb that we saw last week are now compelled to attend a different kind of feast with a very different guest list. This is the supper of the great God to which the birds are especially invited. They're the special guests who will feed upon the utter carnage the last battle will entail. Sadly, this feast that the earth dwellers must attend is a gruesome one. Why sadly? Well, because none of them had to be there. Even in the tribulation, God's gracious offer of salvation had been made. But each person there had refused to accept that offer and instead remained in opposition to Christ. In verse 19, John says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. 
Interestingly, there's no blow-by-blow description of that final battle. It really isn't a clash of forces that are equal in strength. It is a judgment that falls quickly and completely, and none escape, not even the Antichrist and the false prophet. For John says, But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who had performed miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of sulphur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. The Antichrist and the false prophet are both seized, apparently by Christ himself, and are cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, where they'll spend an eternity in torment. As uncomfortable as it may be to our modern-day ideas, it is clear the Bible teaches an ongoing place of torment for those who have remained hostile to God. Those in the lake of fire are not destroyed. They do not cease to exist. In fact, we'll see the Antichrist and the false prophet later in Revelation still alive and still in that place of torment. Though the armies who followed them are killed and their flesh was eaten by the birds that had been called to the supper, there is no mention of the beast's followers being thrown into the lake of fire just yet. Their final judgment will happen later in chapter 20. But does the text say that everyone on earth dies at this point? No, it is just the rest of them, the rest of those who are present at the Battle of Armageddon. It is their blood that flows like a river the length and breadth of Israel, as forewarned in Revelation 14 verses 19 to 20. But the whole world is not present at the battle, for remember elsewhere, we were told that other earth dwellers hid in caves, hoping that the rocks would fall on them to hide them at Christ's return. Another important observation is that although the Antichrist is dealt with here, Satan has withdrawn from him and will face his own final judgment and doom in the next chapter. In fact, there's no actual break in the original Greek between what happens to the Antichrist and false prophet and their followers at the end of chapter 19 and what happens to the dragon they serve at the beginning of chapter 20. So let's back up and read it that way. Chapter 19 ends with this. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And then chapter 20 follows. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked it and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time.
In this complex piece of the vision, once the Antichrist and false prophet have been dealt with and their armies defeated, an angel comes from heaven to deal with Satan, who is the dragon of Revelation 12, the serpent of the Garden of Eden. This mighty angel carries the key to the abyss in one hand and a large chain in the other. He first seizes Satan and binds him with the chain. This is perhaps not meant to indicate a literal chain, but certainly it is some sort of severe restraint that will last for a thousand years. Then he throws Satan into the abyss and locks him inside, securing the entrance so that he cannot possibly free himself, nor be freed by anyone else from the outside. There is a purpose to this confinement. It is to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. Although we're not specifically told that his demons are with him, that is implied, and so for a period of a thousand years, they will all be imprisoned in the pit. With Satan bound, though, what happens on earth? Well, this span of time is known as the millennium, from the Latin mill meaning a thousand and annum meaning years. This is the time during which the saints will reign on earth with Christ. We don't have time to go into more detail now, but there are different views concerning this reign of Christ on earth, and I hope to revisit this in our final lesson once the text of Revelation has been covered. John gives us a glimpse of that time in verses 4 to 6, saying, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. In this section, we see mentioned three different groups of people. There are the group who are seated on the thrones, there are the martyrs of the tribulation, and there's a third group of people mentioned in verse 5 as the rest of the dead. We'll say more about them in a moment. Let's take a close look, though, at the first two groups. John sees holy ones of God seated on thrones and identifies them as those who have been given authority to judge. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're told that all Christ followers will act as judges in the end. For example, in Revelation 2 verse 26, Christ tells those who overcome and do his will that he will give them authority over the nations. Paul also referred to this when he encouraged the Christians in Corinth to settle disputes among themselves. In 1 Corinthians 6 verses 1 through 3, he said, If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? 
Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? The second group John mentions in Revelation 20 verse 4 are those who've been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. These are the tribulation martyrs who've been slain for their witness. These first two groups refer to believers, those who were with Christ, and John says that they will come alive and reign with him during the millennium. But the third group mentioned in verse 5, the rest of the dead are not brought to life at this point. They are those who are dead in their sin, who oppose God and do not belong to Christ, but who worship the beast and took his mark. John says that they will be judged at the end of the millennium, at the end of the thousand years. John then explains that what has occurred here at the start of the thousand years is the first resurrection. Perhaps it'll surprise you to know that there is more than one resurrection mentioned in Revelation. There's the resurrection of the righteous, which we see here, and then there will be a second resurrection, the resurrection of the unrighteous, which will include the dead mentioned there in verse 5. John then says something important about this first resurrection. In fact, it's the fifth blessing of Revelation. He says, Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. God's holy people. Those who belong to Christ are part of the first resurrection and they are blessed because the second death has no power over them. We learned about the second death previously in our study. Do you remember? All people who have ever lived will face physical death, the end of biological life. But the second death is the eternal separation from God and his life, a spiritual kind of death that is suffered by those who do not belong to Christ. Those who suffer this separation from God will endure an eternity of torment. Unlike God's holy ones who will not only be priests of God and of Christ, but who will reign with him during his millennial kingdom. So what happens when the thousand years have passed? Let's look at verse 7. When the thousand years were over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night for ever and ever. Now, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. He'll go over the whole earth, sowing the seeds of rebellion once more, deceiving nations in every direction of the compass, represented here by the names Gog and Magog. Interestingly, 
Gog and his people were mentioned in the Old Testament in Ezekiel. There they were said to be the enemies of God's people. So some think that's why their names are used here to represent the final enemies of God who are fighting for Satan at the end of his thousand years of incarceration. In truth, identifying who they may be Beyond that is not really necessary, for there are many nations gathered from the four corners of the world. In fact, so many nations that they are like the sand on the seashore, and every one is deceived by Satan. We're told that they surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city, which is very likely a reference to Jerusalem. But their rebellion will not succeed because they'll be soundly defeated. And verse 10 tells us that it is at that point that the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Notice how the Antichrist and false prophet are still there, though, a thousand years after they were thrown in, and that they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You know, anyone who says that hell doesn't exist or that it's not eternal is deceived. I know that this may seem strange here that God would allow this final rebellion to happen, but it does reveal that God doesn't interfere with free will. Each person has their own ability to choose whom they will serve. So now that Satan has been dispensed with, what remains? Look at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Christ is seated as judge on his great white throne in all its purity and holiness. The earth and sky that we know are no more, and there before Christ's throne, the judgment of those who have rejected Christ, who are spiritually dead, begins. This is the second resurrection, the resurrection of the dead John mentioned earlier in verse 5. Here, the great and small who did not know Christ stand before his throne as the record books were opened, and each person was judged according to what he had done. And because they declined the opportunity to be included in the second book John mentions, the book of life, there will be no escape. John writes, anyone whose name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We've seen this book before. It is the book that records the names of those who've placed their trust in Christ. 
Those whose names are not found there will not enter into eternal life in heaven. They will live in torment with the trinity of evil in the lake of fire. This eternal separation from God's presence is the second death, according to verse 14. Aren't you thankful for the assurance in verse 6 that it has no power over those who belong to Christ, those who are blessed as being part of the first resurrection? But for these brought forth at the second resurrection, there is no such blessing, just sure expectation of separation from God and lasting torment. Before we conclude today, I do want to mention that we as believers will also be judged, but we will be judged in a different manner for a different reason and with a different result. Because we're covered by the blood of Christ, the judgment we face has nothing to do with our eternal destination, but everything to do with our rewards in heaven. As Christ followers, we have been saved from the lake of fire because we've believed in Jesus Christ who paid the debt for our sin. However, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 says that after we believe, we must make it our goal to please God for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. That phrase, the judgment seat of Christ there in Greek, is the judgment beamer of Christ. The beamer was the raised platform that athletes were called to when they received their crowns. And we too shall be called before Jesus to receive our crowns. Paul taught more about the judgment of believers in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, when he warned, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burnt up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames." Christ is the only foundation that can be laid. However, we each choose how we build on that foundation, and this is where our works come into play. Jesus said in John chapter 6 verse 29 that the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's really the first work that God desires. And until that work is done, nothing else matters. There's nothing else to build upon. But those who've believed in Christ, who have made him their foundation, their cornerstone, will be saved. And we build on that foundation of Christ by the things that we do as believers. The quality of our work determines our rewards. And those who have built poorly with shoddy materials or with little effort will suffer loss. They themselves will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. 
I don't know about you, but I don't want to enter heaven with the smell of smoke on me. I want to stand firm on that foundation, which is Christ, and then build my life with the things that matter, the things that will stand into eternity. I know this has been a complicated passage of scripture today, and I appreciate that we will still have questions that really may only be answered when we stand in God's presence and see him face to face. Next time, John will introduce us to where that might take place as we look at John's vision of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.